Well, welcome to the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey, and uh, with us here we have Peter Nuns, who is uh, from Te Waihanga, the Infrastructure Commission, uh, their chief economic advisor. Is that how you'd describe it? Oh, director of Economics. Fantastic. But similar, similar principle. Yeah, uh, who's just um, put out a, I think, fantastic paper, uh, 51 pages of juicy joy, on uh, uh, what happened with house prices in New Zealand over the last 50 years or so in relation to the flexibility of housing supply. How elastic is it, as we economists would describe it, i.e. what happens to prices when you change demand and you have an inflexible uh, uh, housing supply market. So tell us, Peter, what is it that you discovered in the um, 51 pages of research? Um, so what, what we did in the paper was we took a look at, at roughly nine decades of housing market data from New Zealand running from about 1930 to 2018. And we, we looked at this, the, the fundamental factors affecting um, housing demand, um, uh, incomes, population growth, um, interest rates a little bit around the edges, although we didn't have a full 90 years of data on that. Um, and, and what happened to house prices when those factors changed? And what we found is quite striking. Um, New Zealand's population was growing quite a lot more rapidly in, say, the 1950s and 60s uh, than, it, than it has been in recent decades. So population growth peaked in the 1950s. Uh, New Zealand's population increased by about 25%. That's twice the rate, that we've tr twice the rate of increase that we've seen in recent decades. Um, and but that was both the baby boom and quite a bit of migration. Both of those two things, yes. Yeah. So the baby boom worked through into a, a, a similarly rapid increase in working age population in the 1960s. Um, but house prices have grown much more rapidly in recent decades in spite of that decline in, in, um, uh, in population growth. And, and housing construction has also declined proportionate to population growth. So we took a look. That might surprise a few people because they go around town these days and there's orange cones everywhere. Uh, yet, even though we've got record numbers of consents, when you compare it with the size of our population, um, we're not doing quite as well as we were in the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah, so we, what, what's happened since 2018, which is when the data in the paper ends, is actually we've seen a big uptick in consents. So, so the things that we've been doing policy-wise on urban planning over the last um, half decade have, have sort of been coming through to, to, to result in an increase in building. But we're still really back only back up to the average level that we were at in the 50s and 60s. And it's unclear whether we're going to be able to sustain that for decades as we did at that point. Um, so so what, what we looked at in the paper was basically, well, how, how, does the, how, how do house prices respond when population grows, when income grows? And our finding there was, was basically that between, say, the, the mid-1930s and the mid-1970s, a big 40-year block of time, when you had a 1% increase in population, it flowed through into about a half a percent increase in house pr prices on average. Um, over the last 40 years, from the late 1970s to 2018, um, a 1% increase in population flows through into more like a 2% increase in house prices. So it's a big increase in transmission. Um, and that implies that, that, that rather than building houses in response to growth, we're, we're, we're boosting, boosting the price of existing homes. Um, and so the next thing we did in the paper was sort of say, well, okay, if we've seen this big trend and big change in the trend in how housing markets respond, what could be behind this? Um, and we pinpointed two changes that started to kick in around the 1970s. Um, one of those was a change to how we do urban planning. So 
prior to the 1970s, um, the, the district schemes that exist in inner city, inner city areas like Auckland Central were quite permissive. They let, they let you build quite a lot of apartments, quite a lot of townhouses. In central Auckland, um, the 1961 district scheme would have enabled a 3.5-fold increase in population relative to what was there. Is that, that why we've got one or two of these really high-rise residential buildings on a couple of the ridges? There's one in Jervois Road and one in Remuera. And you get the sense they were built in the late 60s, early 70s, and then someone said, oh, we don't want any of that. Is that what, what happened? There seemed to be, seemed to be a bit of that. And then in the plans in the 70s and 80s, um, they, they sort of put, put the chop to most, most of that. But they left, they left the option to develop in that really intense way in a few pockets of, of, of places. And generally when you see those um, mid-rise and high-rise apartment blocks in the suburban areas of Auckland and Wellington, it's, it's either because they happened in the 60s when planning was more liberal, or they happened in the 80s when, when there were still a few pockets where you could do that. Um, and, uh, but, but starting in the early 1970s, all that went away. In the 1970 district scheme, um, Auckland City Council cut its, cut its um, zoning capacity by 50%. And it basically sort of held it down at that level of sort of not allowing a lot of growth in the central areas of Auckland um, for roughly 45 years until the coming of the Auckland Unitary Plan in, uh, in, in 2016. So this was, in effect, a downzoning of our biggest city. And not just a downzoning, a massive downzoning. It wasn't a small downzoning, it was an enormous downzoning. And the effects of that ramified, ramified through in subsequent decades. They took a while to appear, but they did start biting. So what, why did they do it? Because surely the population was still growing reasonably strongly, and for 20 or 30 years there'd been this national drive to build houses for the young families growing up after the war and all that. What, why did they change? Well, I think that's the other side of the story, which was what was happening with transport speeds at the time. So in the post-war decades, from, from, from the 40s to the 40s to the 70s, you have this rapid adoption of, of the motor car, which, which is faster than the previous travel options. And what that does is, is we, we, we estimated that the average travel speeds in, in urban areas increased dramatically during that time period. And the effect of that was that it was easier and easier to commute from the fringes of the city. You were opening up vast new tracts of land for housing. Um, and, and so people weren't that concerned about, about whether we were going to be able to build more apartments in the city center. It seemed like the, 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 the sort of urban expansion was going to be the, the wave of the future. But starting in the 1970s, the, the, the sort of beneficial trend in tra travel speeds that we were seeing turned into one that was growing less beneficial and then turning negative. So you, basically everyone who wanted a car bought a car. Um, the roads all got paved. Which, which was the big fundamental improvement to, you know, to infrastructure at the time. Um, and congestion started to bite. And so probably by the early 1990s, you start, to, you start to see congestion sort of resulting in reduced, reduced travel speeds. And that's when it starts to get harder to build out on the fringes of the city. Um, and and then the houses that are closer to the center become relatively more valuable because you're not spending so much time stuck on Dominion Road or, or uh, you know, Great South Road. Yeah, and that's when Ponsonby started to gentrify, right? When people figured out, well, actually, commuting is going to get harder, it's going to get more congested, so if I've got the option, I'll buy a house more centrally. And the, the unfortunate bit is that we'd made that decision to downzone those areas. So rather than building a whole bunch of more, more housing in that area so more people could benefit from that option, we kind of froze the places 
froze the housing stock as it was. But if, if um, that was the problem, why didn't the councils go, okay, uh, if we're going to sprawl, we should really sprawl, and we need a lot more motorways, and we need a lot more pipes on the fringes, let's go for it. What, what actually happened? So it sounds like we stopped going up because we were going out, and then we seem to stop, <laughs> stop going out as well. We sort what? of stopped going anywhere. Yeah, right? <laughs> what happened there? Um, so, so there's another part of the story that's a little bit harder to, to build into an economic model, but I think it's somewhat important qualitatively. It's, it's how the, the different acts that governed urban planning worked over time. So if you look at the 19, we focused on, as we're the infrastructure commission, so we focused on how these things dealt with infrastructure. You have the 1953 Town and Country Planning Act, it's 1977 successor, and then the RMA in 1991. And the, the, the Town and Country Planning Acts both had this, this um, very clear wording about what councils should do with infrastructure planning. They said basically, you should have a regional plan that outlines how you coordinate infrastructure and housing and economic growth. And you should have district schemes that lay out exactly sort of how you're gonna do those upgrades over time. And if you look back at the district schemes that were written under those acts, they're very detailed on this. They have a whole bunch of sort of micro-level designations. We're going to widen this road. We're going to build a new, build a new road through, through this, this area to sort of provide connectivity between here and here. That's where the new park's going to go. This is where we're designating the waterworks, right? It's, it's a lot of thought into how you integrate the infrastructure and, and, and the population growth. And what the RMA does is it deletes those requirements for integrating and coordinating infrastructure and housing growth and replaces them with nothing. Um, the philosophy, I, you know, I don't know, don't want to speculate on what the exact discussion was, but I, I would imagine it was something along the following lines, right? Well, what are we going to do with infrastructure? We have to deal with infrastructure. Well, it's, it's, that's an effect that we have to manage. And the RMA is an effects-based planning framework, so as long as we tell people to manage all the relevant effects, they'll, they'll, they'll get this right. And of course, what happened when you lose that direction is you lose, you know, people stop doing it. So cumulatively, we've seen the effects of this down zoning. Then we're starting to see from the 1990s onwards, slowing traffic uh, as there's more congestion. And I'm guessing too, because the import of used Japanese vehicles in the early 90s onwards has made it cheaper for, for everyone to have three cars per household instead of one. And, and so you're seeing slowing traffic, which has increased the price of property closer to the center of town. And because you've got quite a bit of population growth through the, from the early 2000s onward, up until COVID, uh, that's, you've got a, a quite restrictive supply and then uh, some increased demand going on. So um, that has resulted in a lot of house price increases. But you've done something really interesting where you've used some well-accepted urban economics models to try and sort of strip out and, and uh, do a counterfactual of what would have happened if we'd uh, not done the downzoning and if we'd gotten the congestion right? And what did you find? So uh, I thought this was fascinating, right? So, so you, you mentioned the, the economic model. We were drawing on one of the classic, classic urban economic models, the, the Alonzo Muth Mills um, sort of urban spatial structure model, which, which has been used pretty widely for, for policy analysis. And we ran, ran that model over time at a, few, at a few different points over the last century with the, the various inputs of the day, the pop, city population, travel speeds, um, uh, um, GDP per capita, that, 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 you know, the planning policies of the time as best as we could estimate them. 
and 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 the the first really cool thing was that we were able to almost exactly match what happened in Auckland over that 90-year period, right? You know, we 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 picked the rate of house price growth in both both time periods based on the the the, the change in in the underlying factors that was going on. Um, we picked the change in the rate of urban expansion, the rate at which the city was expanding out to the fringes. Um, not perfectly, but but you know, for the standards of economic models, very, very good. So it's essentially you, you built a model, you've set the dials to the inputs, you know, mm. interest rates and house uh, and um, population growth, and then you've run the model to see whether it actually matched up with what really happened, and it was remarkably close. It was pretty close, yeah, yeah. Um, not bulletproof, no, no model's ever going to be bulletproof, but I was... I was pretty pleased. But uh, the beauty is then you can rerun it and turn down a couple of dollars exactly. and see what happened. Yeah. Yeah, and what, what we found was that if, if you had um, if if you'd been able to do two things, um, you know, not, uh, this, this is one of those sort of um, uh, you know, easy to say, hard to do sorts of things, right? If if we had avoided the downzonings of the early 1970s, so we hadn't capped apartment development in inner city inner city Auckland, um, for instance. Um, and if we, had if we had avoided the decline in travel speeds that's resulted from congestion since the 90s, not, not, not continued improving travel speeds, just halted the decline, then the rate of house price growth that we've seen over the last 40 years would have been considerably less, about 70% less um, than, than it actually was in practice. So that's about 50% below the levels we got to in 2018. Yeah, so house prices by 2018 would be quite a lot cheaper than they were and much more in line with with um, with what we see internationally with with, with cities that have well-functioning housing markets. Um, and, and what I think is so important about that is that it is a counterfactual exercise, it is a model, but it really suggests that we did actually have meaningful choices. We didn't have to let this happen, it wasn't inevitable. And by implication, we can do different things going forward and get a different result. So um, that's the sort of, uh, so what's the, the learnings from this, from a, a, the Te Wahanga, the Infrastructure Commission's point of view? Well, the, the good thing, uh, the good news about this from, from an institutional perspective um, is, is that we've been working on our big, one of our big legislative deliverables, which is the 30-year infrastructure strategy. And we've got a section in there um, uh, got a section in there on, on how to make more inclusive and attractive cities um, over, over, over that over that longer term time period and and the good news is that the recommendations we had in there look like they're actually pretty good ideas from from the perspective of this research um, so we've we're talking to issues like how you adapt the planning system um, to to uh, plan ahead provide for more capacity link up infrastructure again um, through through um, changes to resource management legislation to bring to bring that sort of strategic infrastructure housing coordination back in in a core way, um, you know, we're talking about things like things like congestion pricing, which which should sort of help to ease that issue on uh, ease that issue of travel congestion. Um, we're also having a bit of a look at well, okay, if we can't sort of jumpstart jumpstart the motor of sort of um, increasing travel speeds and, and 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 urban expansion in the same way that we were seeing in in the in, in the post-war decades, well, what do we do instead? Well, a lot more weight comes on things like telecommuting. We, th we think that there's actually something quite big in there, you know, digital, digital oppor opportunities. A lot more weight comes on water networks in established urban areas because that's going to be the key constraint to intensifying and providing more homes in a lot of inner city areas, getting those right. So we've, we've sort of tried, we've picked out a few things that we think could really help there. Um, 
Uh, and we've got um, some links in the article that go out with this uh, podcast to the, the deeper work that you're doing on that 30-year strategy. Peter Nunns, the Economics Director at Te Wahanga, the Infrastructure Commission, thank you very much for being on the Kaka. Thanks for having me, Bernard. It's always a pleasure.